Good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's a privilege to be here with you and those of you who are guests, welcome to you as well. It's an extraordinary sort of time. When this began, I said this is not an unprecedented time, but an extraordinary time. I said it's not unprecedented because there have been um, plagues before, and the church has even suspended its gatherings before in history. But now I'll tell you it's unprecedented because it's never been a kind of global phenomenon that's gone on for this long. And in these forms, this, this is new. We haven't gathered together since March 8th of this year. That means that it was 14 weeks ago that we last gathered. And even now, this is not our normal situation. Not normal. It's beautiful, thankfully. God has graced us, even in Bakersfield, with a nice day in June. So that we might gather. But it's not normal. We don't even know where we'll meet next week. Um, as a prayer request, Kern High Board meets tomorrow night to vote on whether or not to let us um, ever rent their facilities again and when, so you might be praying for that. But we have no idea what's to come. During this time, we have watched our economy crash. It was just 15 weeks ago that we had one of the best economies in decades in America. But yet we've watched it crash. We've watched the government make frustratingly arbitrary decisions. And by God's grace, this disease has not been as bad as originally feared, for which we're thankful. At the same time, the same time we've, we've all been rattled by changes to our lives, many which seem unrelenting and perhaps permanent. Will schools ever return to normal? What about churches, sports, concerts, travel? Will this disease return in a second wave? And if and when it does, what new madness will politicians take us through then? And just as we started to emerge in some small ways from this mess, we saw our nation erupt, explode over questions regarding racism, injustice, police abuse, from peaceful protests to riots and looting at the hands of those looking for a socialist revolution, we have seen a lot of unrest. We've seen the targeting of small business owners and the purposeful killing of police officers. At the end of February, we were as prosperous a nation as we had been in decades, and now we're reeling from events of the last few months. And if you do not remember all the mess around you, there's a 24-hour news cycle to keep you up to date. And there's social media to keep you constantly thinking about the various views of what's happening. Never has a disease been so politicized. I've thought about what to preach in a moment like this. What do you preach in a moment like this? Do I preach about issues of sin and racism and injustice? 
Do I preach about issues of rebellion against the government and criminal activity? Do I focus on the providence of God and current events? Do I preach the comfort of the Lord in difficult times? And as I was thinking about that and even preparing for the Radius Conference coming up, I realized what I must preach. Here is my concern for Christ's church, a concern for myself, and my concern for you. I'm concerned that in the midst of all this mess, we are becoming distracted from what Christ has given us to do. Some of us more than others, probably all of us to some extent. In the midst of this mess, we can be easily distracted and have our eyes set here on earthly things and miss what's central to the heart of Christ and his mission for his church. So I want to answer the unrest, the national crisis, by doubling down on the Great Commission. I I gave my sermon an interesting title, Coronavirus, Black Lives Matters, and the Great Commission. So I want to look this morning at the last words of Jesus to his church. I want to look at those words together, but before I jump into the text, I want to provide the setting. I want to provide the setting of the Great Commission because I don't think we think about it often enough. The apostles are a group of men who are in the midst of much personal turmoil. There was once 12 of them. There are now 11. One of them has committed suicide following betrayal. One of their closest friends has committed suicide after one of their closest friends betrayed the Lord. That's a difficult situation. They are citizens of a nation that's been oppressed by foreign powers for centuries. First, Babylon, beginning beginning in the 7th and then 6th century, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, and then Rome. They live in a constant state of political unrest and government oppression. They witness much disease, economic distress, poverty, and famine. Listen, think about the poverty that existed among them when you come to a scene like Jesus is giving out bread and 5,000 people show up. They show up for the food because there's so much poverty and famine. There were wars, natural disasters, and incredible injustice at the hands of capricious rulers. The Caesars were not good at this time. They walked with Jesus, these apostles, for over three years. They heard him teach. They saw him do miracles. And they loved him deeply. Then they watched one of their closest friends, Judas Iscariot, turn on Jesus. They saw Jesus mistreated, unjustly accused, beaten, and crucified. Worse yet, they were also being sought after and witnessing their own cowardice and betrayal as they fled the scene 
and denied even knowing Jesus. On the third day, they had heard that his tomb was empty. They saw him resurrected from the dead. He walked among them resurrected, and he taught them. He had told them that he would be departing to ascend to the right hand of the Father, and he told them that they would be left here in this world to suffer. Did you guys catch that? No worries. I've resurrected from the dead. I'm ascending to the right hand of the Father. We're all rule and reign. I'm leaving you here to suffer for the sake of my name. Imagine how they must have been reeling at this moment. How their heads must have been spinning. How bewildered and unsettled they must have been. There were 11 of them. And Jesus is going to tell them, go and make disciples of the whole earth. Yet this tiny band of disciples who were confused, bewildered, surrounded with suffering, injustice, uncertainty, and fear become the greatest missionary force the world has ever known. How did that happen? How did that happen? This is what I want to consider in the Great Commission. And I pray the Spirit uses this commission in the same manner for us, Sovereign Grace. I pray that this is not an occasion for us to lick our wounds, to complain of injustice, to hope in a recovering economy, to work to make America great again, or to pine for the liberties we once knew. Yes, it is understandable to want all those things, and all those things are good things. But I am praying that the Holy Spirit drives the words of Christ deep into our hearts and sears them into our minds. I'm praying this becomes a moment in which we double down on the Great Commission and the Lord Jesus raises up among us a concerted effort to make his name known in our city and among every tribe and tongue and nation. As we look at the Great Commission, we're setting the scene. So look with me at Matthew 28 and verse 16. Matthew 28 and verse 16. After his resurrection on Easter Sunday and prior to his ascension 40 days later, we don't exactly know when, Jesus commanded the disciples to meet him on a mountain in Galilee. So you're aware some scholars believe this is the scene at which there are more than 500 present that Paul references when he says that he was seen by more than 500. I'm not sure. What I know is that this is somewhere between his resurrection from the dead and his ascension Somewhere in that time period, he had told his disciples, meet me on a mountain in Galilee. Now, look with me at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Now this is no mistake that they're going to a mountain. Pay attention to the importance of mountains in the Gospel of Matthew. If you think about the most important teaching moments in the life of Christ. He brought them to a mountain. You can think of the first one in Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount. Right? You can think of the Mount of Transfiguration. You can think of Golgotha, the Mount where he was crucified. 
And here again, on a mountain. And what happens when he, when they meet him on that mountain? Verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. They're worshipping him and some are doubting. This is why they, scholars argue, that the some who doubted is a huge crowd that's there apart from the apostles. Though this is primarily directed at the apostles, the eleven, they argue there are crowds there. Again, I don't know. What I know is they worshipped him and he received that worship. Happily. Now what does Jesus say at the scene? What are his marching orders to his church? What are some of the final words of the Lord to his people? This morning I'm contending, I'm contending that Jesus really uh, gives us two assurances and one mission. He essentially sandwiches the mission within the two assurances. The first assurance is that he has unlimited authority. You'll see that in verse 18. The mission is coming in verse 19 through 20a, or the first section of verse 20. And then the last assurance really is his unceasing presence, which you're going to find at the end of verse 20. So let's look at the first thing Jesus says to them, verse 18, and his unlimited authority. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now I want to trace some words here briefly. It doesn't come out quite as well in the English, at least in the ESV. It does in the Greek because it's the same word, pos, pon, pontos, um, which means all. Notice this. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go to verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then look at the last phrase, and behold, I am with you always, which actually in Greek is all the days, all the days, to the end of the age, all authority, all nations, all that I've commanded, all the days. He's speaking of an unlimited authority with a universal commission. Jesus is king. He is Lord of all. He has all authority in heaven above and on earth below. The Hebrews have a literary device called a mirrorism. Now, here we're writing in Greek, but they often write from a Semitic kind of perspective. And a mirrorism is where you say um, everything by comparing the two poles, if you will. Everything in heaven... And everything in earth means everything. I have all authority in heaven and earth. It's all been given to me. It was rightfully his as the son of God, but it has been granted to him as the God-man, the Messiah. Jesus is king. He is Lord of all. As Abraham Kuyper has said, Jesus looks at every square inch of the earth And declares, mine. He has ascended to heaven. And he is seated at the right hand. And he rules and reigns. And you set your eyes on him. You make your life 
attentive to his voice in his word. You would attune your ears to hear Christ's voice in his holy word and you drown out every competing siren call of the world. All of it. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3, and you can turn there, Colossians 3 and verse 1. Look there briefly. Look what he says. If then you have been raised with Christ, if you're a believer, you have been raised with Christ. That's you. By the Spirit. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, hear that, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Now why? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, not when Christ, who is your priority, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If you don't set your eyes on Jesus, you will lose sight of what matters. You'll lose perspective. His unlimited and universal authority is an encouragement to obey because of the nature of the one commanding. This is the king, and these are his marching orders. He has authority over your life. He has authority over our church. Christ's authority is universal, unlimited, without bounds. Thus, the local church also should not construct excuses for why it can disregard the Great Commission. His unlimited and universal authority is an encouragement to obedience as he has all the nations and all the times in his hand. All of them. You guys know COVID-19 doesn't stop the mission. Jesus isn't in heaven going, oh, I didn't know about that one. I'll pull back on that Great Commission thing now. An unsettled America doesn't stop the mission. National prosperity and national depression don't stop the mission. Church budgets that are off Don't stop the mission. Ministers and missionaries who stumble don't stop the mission. Wars, famines, pestilences, natural disasters, plagues don't stop the mission. Jesus did not gather the 11 disciples and say, as soon as things are smooth, get on mission. So what's the mission? What's his mission? That's the second point, his unbounded mission, really. Look at verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Listen, there's one imperative in the Greek here, the word make disciples. Make disciples is the main imperatival verb. The other verbs you see around there, baptizing, teaching, 
and go are participles. They help that verb along. They give you some definition explanation. The first participle, go, is what scholars will call a participle of attendant circumstance. You go, oh, that's super helpful. What does that mean? Let me tell you what that means. It means that that participle attends the circumstance of the main verb. The main verb is a command, so that participle is also a command. Go and make disciples. Jesus gathered the apostles on this mountain and said, go and make disciples of all the nations. In order, in fact, to make disciples of all the nations, you have to go somewhere to all the nations. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And then he goes on with these other ones, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is a participle of means. That's how you do it. You go and make disciples, and how do you make disciples? You baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you go and proclaim the gospel, the gospel that forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. You go and proclaim that message that the Messiah has come. He has lived the perfect life you failed to live. He has kept God's law in every regard. He was tempted in every way yet without sin. He has fulfilled that. And he went to the cross and he took our penalty upon himself and he atoned for our sins, satisfying the wrath of the Father and bringing cleansing and the forgiveness of sins for us and imputing, crediting his righteousness to us so that we are declared just, righteous before God. Go declare that. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death and that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and poured out his spirit And you're united by his spirit to him through faith so that the old man that you were is dead and you're alive to Christ. You're alive to God. You're reconciled to him. You have eternal life. Go and preach that message. And when people believe, baptize them in the name of the Father, the one who decreed this gospel message. In the name of the Son, the one who accomplished this gospel and the name of the holy spirit the one who applies this gospel to you go and preach the gospel when they believe baptize them in the name of the triune lord and then teach them teach them what to obey everything i've commanded you all my commands he is god so his commands aren't just contained in the gospel of matthew every command in the whole counsel of god From Genesis through Revelation, you teach them to obey them, to follow me. This is a command to plant churches. We know that because that's what the apostles did. They planted churches. We go where Christ is not known, and we proclaim the gospel, and we plant churches there. Notice we go where Christ is not known. It's a global command. It's a command to go to all the nations. Pantata ethne. Ethne, you hear that word? The ethnes, the peoples. So that every tribe and tongue, language and nation knows Christ. We go to every nation precisely because every nation is his. The scope of his command is universal. Now hear this. Because it's universal, it's exclusive. Jesus is no fan of pluralism. Pluralism may or may not be good in a governmental system, 
But Jesus does not look down at the numerous religions and philosophies of the world and see them as beautiful. He looks upon them and sees them as soul-damning idolatry. And he desires to save his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. There are 3,100 plus people groups. Hear this. Distinct language groups who have never heard the name of Jesus in their history. They have no gospel witness in their language. No churches in their language. No Bible in their language. No Christian workers in their language. There aren't any radio programs from America translated into their language. There aren't any missionaries working in their language. They have no access to the gospel. Zero. They are in darkness and have no light. Have no hope. They are damned to eternal hell with no hope. The wrath of God, for the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has made it plain, the things that have been made. But what have they done? They have turned from the worship of the Creator to the worship of the creature. And so God's wrath abides upon them. And they have no hope. They are suffering and dying in utter darkness without even a glimmer of light. And what are we doing? We're exhausting our energy on crafting an image on social media. Or parsing through our own passions and dreams. Or figuring out our personality types. Or licking our wounds because we've had a rough year. Or marching in the streets to make America perhaps the most just nation in the history of the earth, even just a little more just. Like spoiled rich kids, those with the immeasurable treasure of the gospel, we are throwing little temper tantrums about what we lack. Meanwhile, whole populations suffer from a poverty with regard to the good news while we're fixated on just making life a little better for ourselves. And our mission to go and proclaim Christ to the whole world, to baptize professing believers as we gather them into churches, and to teach them to obey the whole counsel of God, is still our mission. It hasn't stopped. Listen, Jesus tells us why he came. The Son of Man, Mark tells us, came to seek and save the lost. Understand how exclusive the Great Commission is. If Jesus is not the Lord, this is one of the most offensive passages you can imagine. He receives worship. And then he says, I have all authority in heaven and earth. Every person in every nation should bow the knee to me and confess I'm Lord and follow me and trust me. I am their only hope of salvation. They should obey every command that I give. That's a pretty exclusive set of declarations about oneself, don't you think? But that's what our Lord says. 
the young person who is angrily marching in the streets and the police officers against whom that young person is marching both need Jesus. So we as a church are to focus on making Christ known here where we live, then to raise up believers as a church and send some of our folks where there is no gospel witness. It's really simple, Sovereign Grace. The mission has not changed even one little bit. Not even one little bit. And it's a simple mission. I didn't say it's an easy mission, but it's simple. You guys know the hardest things in life are often the most simple, right? You want to be thin? Eat right and exercise. Simple. Hard to do, right? Takes discipline. Some of you are good at that. Some of you are not. We make Christ known to unbelievers. Simple. Make him known to unbelievers. We gather those who profess faith into the church through baptism. We worship with those believers. We encourage one another. And we raise up folks to send those people to those who've never heard. Simple. This isn't rocket science. It is unambiguously and relentlessly clear what we're supposed to be about. The mission of the church is not something that we have to wrestle with figuring out. It's just right there in your face. Jesus has left it with as much clarity as he possibly can. It is only our sin and our pursuit of comfort that gives us a number of justifications to get around it. But simple doesn't mean easy. It's hard. It's really hard. It's pour out your life unto death hard. It's impossibly hard. Which leads to my third point, his unceasing presence. Look at verse 20, the last part of it. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you all the days to the end of the age. Note that Jesus is with his church all the days until his return. He is always with his people. Jesus is with you. Please hear this, because this is the assurance you have. There is not one moment that Jesus fails to be with his church. And because he is the Lord of heaven and earth, there is not one thing that Jesus fails to be in control of. Not one. Now that matters both for the preservation of your faith, if you will, on one side, the preservation of your faith, and for the empowerment for mission. For mission. Just as Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. You guys remember? We went through that section in Hebrews so many times you probably all have it memorized. Long ago, at many times, and in any ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The reason you don't disintegrate right now is because Jesus is upholding you by the word of his power and all things. This earth that you sit on, this globe that you live on, this universe that you're positioned in in some way, 
is only upheld by the word of his power. Every breath you draw, every beat of your heart, whether you get a disease or don't get a disease, whether you're born black or white or Asian or whatever, all of it is by his superintendence and it is all upheld by the word of his power. It's why you breathe. And just as he upholds the universe by the word of his power, so, please hear this, so he upholds your faith by the word of his grace. That's it. Why do you keep believing? Because he's upholding your faith. That's why. Why do you not commit apostasy? Because he's graciously upholding you. That's it. Don't ever pat yourself on the back about your growing faith. It's because Christ is pleased to uphold you by the word of his grace that you continue to grow. He keeps you to the end. He is ever interceding for you. And his intercession isn't like, oh, please, Father, I'd like it if you kept these people to the end. He is the Lord. Father, you will keep them to the end. You will. And he empowers the mission of his church. You might wonder how you could ever keep the Great Commission. You ready for the answer? You can't. You can't. Only Christ can through you. That's why he sends the Spirit. Look, Sovereign Grace, our only hope of being faithful to the Lord and his commands, our only hope of being faithful to the Lord and his commands, is that he is faithful to us. The gospel goes forth in the power of God without him working by his spirit. Every gospel word we speak falls to the ground. The words coming out of your mouth from your mind, no matter how eloquently formulated, no matter how witty, no matter how cute you think you are, every word that comes to your mouth falls to the ground. It doesn't penetrate one person's heart, but by the working of the Holy Spirit. Without him sustaining every step, we will do nothing but stumble and fall. If Christ did not have me in his grip, I would run the other direction as fast as I could. So, as Moses, Joshua, Gideon, and Jeremiah were all told at their commission, you know that? They were all told their commission, I will be with you. We hear these same words from Christ. Did you hear that? Moses was told that, wasn't he? Who am I, Lord? You're going to send me into Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth, and tell me to free the slaves. Let me tell Pharaoh to free the slaves. Now, understand what Moses is being asked to do. They're a slave economy. We don't have a comprehension of a slave economy anymore because we left that behind post-Civil War. But they're a slave economy. For Moses to go into Egypt and say, let my people go. We're going to go out to the wilderness and worship God is for Moses to come to the most powerful man on the face of the earth in the most powerful nation the world at that point had ever known and to say to him, let me take your entire economy and leave. 
Moses says, who am I that I should go? God's answer, well, Moses, you're amazing. You speak well, you're good looking, you're charismatic, you're quick on your feet. You have, you know, on the personality profile, you're a D-I, right? You've got it together. I don't know why we only have four personality types in the whole world, but apparently we do. So you are this and you are that. That's not what he said. He didn't even answer Moses' question directly. Who am I? God's answer, I will be with you. I'll be with you. Joshua, go conquer the promised land. I will be with you. Do not be afraid. I will be with you. Gideon, I have the smallest family. Why pick me? There's bigger tribes around here. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Jeremiah, his birth narrative, the weeping prophet. The whole nation has turned against God. They have all chased down apostasy. The false prophets are all they listen to. The true prophets are the ones they kill. They will hate you. They will not listen to your message. They will turn from you. They will persecute you. To which Jeremiah says, great, I'm excited about that mission. What does the Lord say to him? I will be with you. I'll be with you. And what does Christ our Lord say to us, his church? It brackets the whole Gospel of Matthew. You guys know what I mean by bracketing? It's an inclusio, literary device. Everything in this book, between these two ends, or these bookends, these brackets, is about this. Matthew 1, 23. The virgin shall be with child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's how the book starts. How does the book end? I am with you all the days to the end of the age. That is our hope. We go forward together with Christ's continual presence with us as our hope and as our reward. Sovereign grace in these really extraordinary times, we go forward as a church knowing that our Lord has all things in his hands. He's in control of every single bit of it, not one incident that's happened is outside of his sovereign control. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has been given all authority in heaven and earth. We go forward with that great assurance. None of it takes him by surprise. We go forward with a really simple command. It's not rocket science to figure out what our mission is. Go make Christ known. Gather those believers into churches. Encourage one another in the faith. Worship the Lord. And send out people to make him known to the ends of the earth. Really clear. And we go forward as those who know something that's probably the greatest reward you could ever have and the greatest comfort you can ever know. Jesus says, all the days, every moment, every single moment, I am with you. I am with you. There's not a moment that isn't true. With that said, let me pray. Father, we give thanks. We give thanks for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We give thanks that you gave him for us.
that he came willingly to lay down his life that we might be saved. We give thanks that he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, that all things are in his hands. We give thanks that he's made the commission of the church unambiguously clear to make him known in all the earth. We give thanks that, Father, he is with us by the Spirit always. We know that if one moment passed in which he ceased upholding us by the word of his power, we would cease to be. If one moment passed in which he ceased to be upholding our faith by the word of his grace, we would cease to believe. But he has promised to be with us, and so he is. May we be encouraged to look to him, to know Christ, and to make him known. In Jesus' name, amen.